Our New Testament readings today are taken from Matthew 5 and 2 Corinthians 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Your word is truth. And Father, we thank you for the sermon of Jesus that we have recorded for us, the Sermon on the Mount. And Father, how wild and strange it is to our ears that those who are blessed, those who inherit the earth, those who belong in the kingdom of heaven are those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand um, what Jesus means, that you would produce these things in us by your Spirit, and that what we might see as we listen to your Word, and as we worship together, and as we enter into community with one another, that what we might see is that we are being shaped and molded um, into the character and the nature of what Jesus is like, that you would make us more like him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, a couple of, week, a couple of weeks ago when we started this series um, on the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes, if you don't know, is sort of a strange word. It's just a, um, a derivative of the word that Jesus starts each one of these pronouncements with. He pronounces that these people are blessed. And when we started a few weeks ago, we started obviously at the beginning with blessed are the poor in, in spirit. And I used an illustration that week from the Southern author Flannery O'Connor and from one of her short stories called Revelation. I hope some of you were at least, your interest was piqued enough that you went and read that short story or at least some of her short stories. But after that sermon, um, one of our members came up to me and um, we were talking about that short story 
And um, I'll name him. It was Matt Abels. Okay, I'm going to name him. Matt, if you don't know, teaches high school English and um, has taught for several years. And as we were talking about that short story, Matt accosted me, okay? Um, this has happened about, you know, seven to ten times already that he brings up the fact that I've never read Fl- um, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, okay? Uh, right, somebody said, What? Right, I was an English major myself, never read it. I have a signed copy sitting on my bookshelf um, from a student who gave me years ago who knew her personally, and I'd still never read it. And so I repented. As I was preaching on being poor in spirit, I repented, and I went home that day and, and, and read most of it. I read, I read it that week. And you know the story. Most of you know the story. I'm not going to recount it for you, but um, I'd always kind of thought, like, Why are people so fascinated with this book, and why do they love it so much? And as I began uh, to read it, I was drawn into a few characters in particular. And so the story, if you don't know, it's narrated by uh, this precocious little girl named Scout, and she lives with her brother Jim in Macomb, Alabama. And they they live with, their mother has passed away, so they live with their father Atticus and their longtime caretaker, Calpurnia. And Atticus is really the central character of this story. And as you watch him, and as you listen to to Scout talk about him and describe him, one of the things she says um, early on is that he was no different inside the house than he was outside the house. And you start to see how that, that plays out in this town that we might call like very backwards. Um, a town that was very bigoted and, and racist in a lot of ways, but on the outside had this sort of quality of being um, tidied up and moral and church-going. And so what Atticus is always doing throughout this book is he's always teaching his children what it means to be empathetic towards other people. Um, He's always taking every opportunity. There's all these different characters in town, and he's always taking the opportunity to sort of tell them a little bit more of what their life might actually be like so that their children, children might understand why they act the way that they do. That he's teaching them empathy. And then he shows it to them in his life. He shows it to them in the way that he responds to situations. There's, There's one instance where this pretty vile man... Um, who was a liar and an abuser um, named Mr. Yule, spits in Atticus's face as he's walking downtown in Maycomb. And Atticus wipes it off and just carries on. And afterwards, they ask him why he did that, or like what, to, to tell like what happened. And basically, his only comment and response is that, I really wish Mr. Yule wasn't a tobacco chewer. And then he goes on to kind of explain why it was maybe helpful just to let that man get his anger out on him. Because then maybe he wouldn't take it out on somebody else. Or you have, um, you have this, this woman who sits on her porch in her wheelchair every day, Miss DeBose, and she spews um, hateful, racist vitriol at the children as they walk by every day. And most of it is directed at their father, Atticus. And his response to her is to go and to care for her up until the time that she dies. 
and to explain to his children that there was actually a lot of courage in that woman. And that not everything that you saw on the outside really told the story of what she was really about. That that Atticus had a lot of reasons um, to put himself in this town. He had a lot of reasons to put himself on a pedestal and to look down on other people in the town. But over and over and over again, you see that he didn't do that. And the children in that home, they, so they also had another model. They had a model in this caretaker, Calpurnia. This older black woman who had been coming to their home for as long as they could remember to care for her, for, to care for them. And Calpurnia was brilliant and gentle and kind and smart. And she taught Scout how to read when Scout was really early, re- really young to where even when she went to school, the teachers were baffled about who taught you how to read. And one day, Calpurnia takes the kids to her church, to the black church on the other side of town, and this was like another world to them. And what they realize when they're there is most of the people that are there are very poor, and most of them can't um, read. And what they realize is they listen to Calpurnia, the way that she talked to them at home, she talked differently to the people at church. And as they were leaving, they asked her why, because she sort of came down to talk to them. She talked to them like they talked. And they were like, why would you do that? You don't talk like that. You talk really like we talk. And she said this to them, it's not necessary to tell all you know. Folks don't like to have somebody around knowing more than they do. And as I was was reading this book and I was thinking, what is it about these characters that have made them so endearing to so many people um, over the years what are the things that, that draw us to them? And I think that what it is, is I think it's meekness. It's meekness. And what is that exactly? Jesus says in this third beatitude that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. You've heard it maybe so many times that you don't even think about what that, what the meek will inherit the earth, not the boastful Not the angry, not those who flaunt their achievements or tweet about how great they are. And what he's saying is is not that you need now to go and make yourself meek so that you will inherit the earth, because that's the first thing that we think when we come to the Beatitudes. Oh, these must be how-tos for me to be blessed. And so I just need to make myself meek. No, what he's saying is that all of those who know him will be meek because he is meek. All of those who truly know him will be meek because he is meek. And so meekness is a natural consequence of being united with Jesus. And so let me think about it. Let's think about it in a few different ways today. Let's think about what it's not briefly and then what it is. And then we'll think about what it means that the meek are blessed. So what, is meek, what, what isn't meekness? Because I think, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago when, on Palm Sunday when we were watching Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem, um, knowing full well what was going to happen to him, and as everyone praises him and cries out to him, and we know that they're eventually going to turn a few days later and say crucify him, and how Jesus does not open his mouth. Jesus comes humbly, even as he is the king. And that we talked about how this was an embodiment of Jesus's meekness and we typically think of meekness as being someone who's sort of frail or weak or maybe we think of them as just being sort of naturally kind of shy 
or easygoing or having sort of a a mild disposition and, and temperament. We talked about the Mary Carr poem where she actually, this, which is entitled, Who the Meek Are Not. And they are not the bristle-bearded Igors bent under burlap sacks or the peasants knee-deep in rice paddy muck. That's what we think of when we think of meek people. But here's the thing. Meekness is not a natural characteristic of any sinful human being. It's just not. It's not something that you can put on or that you can fake or that you can muster up or that you can produce. That meekness is the result of something else that's happening inside of you. So what is it? Well, as Tanner pointed out a minute ago, there's this, there's this logical sequence to Jesus' Beatitudes that they're not just sort of haphazard and willy-nilly that Jesus is actually making Um, an argument with these, that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are the ones who have gotten to the point where they see what God actually requires of them, and and they realize there is no way that they can ever meet that standard. That they're those who have come to the end of themselves. They've come to the end of their rope. That we looked at the parable um, of the man who beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we said, this is what it looks like to be poor in spirit. And so the one who's poor in spirit, next he says, is one who mourns. And what do they mourn? They mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so the sequence is one who understands that they are spiritually impoverished, and then one who turns and begins to mourn and repent over their sin. And that combination has an influence over our lives. It makes, it makes us meek. So meekness is, you can think about it like this, meekness is the outward expression of those two things happening inside of you that's directed towards God and towards neighbor. Meekness is the outward expression of a poverty of spirit and mourning over sin toward God and neighbor. In other words, poverty of spirit and mourning over sin, those are internal. Um, We can't always see those things happening in one another, but what we see instead is meekness is that internal reality in action. If you're truly poor in spirit, if you really sor- you're sorrowful for your sins, what Jesus is saying is that you will be meek. You will be meek towards God, and you will be meek toward your neighbor. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. He says, the meek person is the one who stood before God's judgment, and he has abdicated all of his or her supposed rights. They have learned in gratitudes for God's grace to submit themselves to the Lord and to be gentle with sinners. They know themselves. They know what they deserve. And it makes them submissive toward God and gentle with their neighbor. So it's towards God and neighbor. Let's think about those two things separately a minute, because meekness is a posture. Uh, Meekness is a posture, first and foremost, that's towards God. So what does it look like to be meek toward God? It looks like being submissive to God, to God's will and to His Word. Being submissive to God's will and His Word. Why? 
Because the person who is poor in spirit and who has mourned over their sins already knows that they don't know better than God, right? And they know that they don't have any right to demand anything of God. So at the heart of meekness is this trust in God. It's a trust in His providence. It's a trust in the fact that if God knows me and God has seen me as I really am and God has offered me grace and forgiveness, it means I trust Him over and above everything else. I trust Him even over and above what I can see with my own eyes or experience in my own life. I trust His providence. And what that means is the, the, the meek person is a person who has contentment. It does not mean that their life is easy. It does not mean that even to the outside their life even looks good or it's a life that you would envy. But on the inside that what they have is a posture towards God that's so submissive to His will that they are content with His life because they know He cannot not be good to me. He's already proven it in His Son Jesus. But it's also, so it's a submission to His will and what He brings into our life, but it's also a submission to His Word. Why? Because his word is where he reveals himself to us clearly. And so we go to his word in submission. We're not sitting in the judgment seat when we go to God's word. God's word, we don't read God's word. God's word reads us. And we go to it with with humility. And we go to it um, saying, I want to know him better and I want to know myself better. And this is where it happens that we submit to his word. That the meek person, I mean, you go throughout the Psalms and you see like examples of this over and over again, starting with the first Psalm. That they meditate on it day and night and they become like trees that are planted by streams of water so that when the drought comes and the wind blows, the roots are so deep that they still flourish and they still bear fruit. That God's word for the one who is meek is, is a delight. You know, Jesus, there's other places where Jesus has these little beatitudes that he throws out that are not in this sermon. And one of them is in Luke 11. And Jesus says this, blessed, it's another beatitude, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why? Because to hear God's word and to actually want to submit to it and to actually want to keep it and to actually keep it is meekness. Because it's saying, I don't know better than you. Which is what we see all around us all the time. Even in the church, I know better than God. And there's little parts of his word I want to throw away and I want to cut out. And I'm putting him on trial. And the meek person, they're submissive to his will and they're submissive to his word but they also have a posture because of that and these things can't be separated they have a posture of being uh, the way that they react to their neighbor that they are meek towards their neighbor so how are they meek towards their neighbor john stott says this he says meekness is a true view of oneself expressed in attitude and conduct with respect to others this makes us This was really convicting this week. Uh, This makes us gentle, humble, sensitive, and patient in all our dealings with others. It's a true view of who I am, and if I really understand who I am and how God has treated me, 
I have an expression and an attitude towards other people that is gentle and humble and sensitive and patient and patient, not impatient, in all of my dealings with others. So meekness, how does it start? I mean, it starts, meekness starts as when we look around, what we do is that we give other people the benefit of the doubt. That the God that we worship is slow to anger and He is abounding in loving kindness. To who? To you. To me. And so when I look at somebody else, my first inclination is not automatically to condemn. Because that was not His first inclination to me. He is the one who judges. And so it means the one who is meek doesn't just, they just don't fire off their words and they don't fire off the email, but they, they sit on it and they ask the question, is this done in love or is it just part of my anger? Meekness is this humble gentleness that, in, that it naturally invites other people to you. But you know, here's the thing, who's it going to invite to you? People who are, who are, who are stuck in their sin and people who are suffering. How do I know that? Because that's who was drawn to Jesus. Over and over and over again. The people who were at the end of their rope were drawn to Jesus because Jesus was meek, which means what? That Jesus came down to their level. That Jesus was gentle with them. Who was he not gentle with? Those who were proud. Those who were boastful. Those who thought they didn't need him. Those who thought they could use the law in order to, to create their own righteousness. He wasn't gentle with them, and they wanted to pick up stones and kill him. Jesus was always drawing people to him, and the people that he was drawing to him were people who were aware of the fact that they could not fix themselves. So the meek will never be surrounded by sort of perfect people. Not all the time. The meek will draw people who are at the end of the rope, who are tired. I was reading um, a sermon by an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and he, he said this. He said, I know some professing Christians who are very harsh and very repellent, and you would not think of going to tell them your troubles. You could not open your heart to them They do not seem to be able to come down to your level. They are up on a mountain, and they speak down to you as a poor creature far below them. This is not the true Christian spirit. That is not being meek. The Christian who is really superior to others is the one who lowers themselves to the lowest level for the general good of all. And we have to hear that. The church needs to hear that. Meekness walks down the downward road alongside Jesus. Meekness, as he'll talk about in the rest of this sermon, turns the other cheek. When when somebody slaps, when somebody slaps you, Jesus says, you should offer them the other cheek. He said that. Meekness takes the cloak and carries it another mile. Meekness is a, it's a freedom from others' opinion of you. So it isn't, meekness isn't overly sensitive. 
And man, we can be overly sensitive. Meekness isn't overly concerned that everything that's happening is really about them. Meekness doesn't take everything personally. Meekness doesn't demand its rights and its privileges and its possessions. It doesn't wallow in self-pity because it already knows that it has received grace. It is always, meekness is always geared toward empathy. It is always geared towards understanding. It is always geared towards seeing what is actually happening in the life of another person. And meekness is quick to associate with the lowly. And that's what Paul instructed. He said to always associate with the lowly. And so if you think of an example of meekness, it may not be the first person that you would go to in the New Testament, but I want you to think about Paul for a minute. Because I think Paul is such a good example of meekness because we knew him before his conversion. And when Paul was Saul, Saul was kind of a jerk, right? He was boastful. He was proud. He was violent. He thought he knew everything. He meets Jesus. And what happens to Saul? Saul becomes Paul, and Paul is one who says of himself, you know, the good that I would I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I wish I didn't do. Thanks be to God that basically he's merciful to jerks like me because I am the chief of sinners. And Paul is, Paul is transformed, and he's changed, and he's changed so much that this is how he describes his ministry. What Beth read to us a few minutes ago in 2 Corinthians Six. Listen to this again. He says, I put no, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, okay, so there's meekness towards God, I am his servant, we commend ourselves in every way. What is commendable about your ministry, Paul? Well, here's what he thinks is commendable. Great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hungers, hunger. Now, somebody who is not me is going to think that those things happening in their life are the direct result of God being against them and not for them. And so Paul is showing them what's commendable about our ministry is that we've submitted ourselves to the will of God. So even the things that you look at in our ministry that you think are proof that God has forgotten us and he's not doing anything. We see as proof is that he is actually working in an extraordinary way that nobody would have guessed, even through the things in our life that look horrible, to extend his good news and to extend the gospel. Okay, So he's submissive to God's will, and then he goes on to show that they are meek towards their neighbor. He says in verse 6, "...by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness..." the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters. And yet we are true. People look at us and they think, your life's a joke. You're an imposter. And he says, but we're actually true. And we know that, and that's good enough. As unknown, and yet we are well known. Where are they well known? They're well known before the throne of God. 
because they bear the righteousness of Christ. We're well known. That's enough. As dying, and yet behold, we live. And where are they going to live? They're going to live eternally. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. And here he sums it up at the end as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. And I think that that is, that is an embodiment, that is, that is a picture of what meekness looks like. It's somebody that you look at them in the world and you kind of think, they don't have anything that the world sees as being valuable or anything to boast about. And yet they know that they actually possess everything. Why? Because the meek inherit the entire earth. And they know that. And so they don't, know, they don't need your approval They don't need your praise. They can be treated as imposters, but they know that they're true. Their identity is securely placed in the love of Jesus that he has displayed toward them in his life and his death and his resurrection. And that makes all the difference. And that's what you see in Paul's life. You think a more modern day example. There was a man um, who passed away this week, actually, at the age of 90 who had become sort of a, he felt like a friend even though I never met him. He was one of those people. He felt like a, a mentor even though we never spent time together in the same place. His name was Jean Vanier. And he was um, a Canadian Catholic who grew up in a really prominent family. And by the age of 13, he told his family, I want to go serve in the Royal Navy. And they were like, okay. And so he goes to school to serve in the no- Royal Navy he begins to, um, you know, for, for quite a few years, he, he serves in the Navy as an officer and a commander. And he got tired one day of learning the art of war and scrambling for power. And so he walked away from it and he met, he met a priest who introduced him to Jesus in a way that he had never been introduced to Jesus before. And it changed him like it changed Paul. And one of the first things he did is he began um, a ministry to a mental institution. And going into this mental institution in France, he was so distraught over the way that the people who lived there were treated as if they were animals, that they had no dignity. And he was so distraught, he didn't know what to do. He had this little house without electricity or running water. And so he just invited two of the men to come and stay with him and to live with him. And he had no training. He didn't know how to care for them. And somebody asked him, what did you think you were going to do? And he said, I thought we might have fun together. He said, I had this little car and I thought maybe we would go for drives together. Maybe we would share meals together. And out of that, who, this is also a man who has a PhD in philosophy, so he's not a simpleton. Out of that was born Larsh and the Larsh communities, which means the Ark and their There's hundreds of them all over the world, and what they do is is that those who have mental disabilities live with those who don't, and they live in community together, where those have dignity. And he talks in his writings about how living with these folks has transformed him, how they have taught him love, how they have taught him humility. And he says this at one point in his writings. He says, the wound in all of us which we are all trying to flee, can actually become the place where we meet with God 
in our brothers and sisters. It's poverty of spirit. It can become the place of ecstasy and the eternal wedding feast. The loneliness and the feelings of inferiority, which we are running away from, becomes the place of liberation and salvation. In essence, meekness is is leaving everything. It's leaving ourselves and our rights and our cause and our whole future in the hands of God. And seeing that He has been gracious to me. And knowing this inevitably makes me submissive to Him. Who else do I have in heaven but you? It makes us submissive to Him and it it makes us gentle with other people. And so how are they blessed? Jesus tells us how the meek are blessed. Because the meek look like they should get run over. The meek look like they don't have anything. The meek might look foolish to the world, but the meek inherit the earth. The meek inherit the earth. How is that? Let me, tell, let me say two ways and we'll be done. And the first way I think is this, is that the meek inherit the earth in the sense is that they are the only people who are actually at liberty to enjoy the earth in the present moment. They're the only ones who are actually free enough to enjoy the earth. So in the present moment, um, you actually, who are meek, who are, in, or you, who are united with Jesus, you are free in a way to love the earth and enjoy the earth that other people aren't. Because you have this gift that he's given you of contentment. It's there for you. You have it. And contentment basically says this, if, all, if I know that all that I'm getting in this life is so much better than what I deserve and what I'm getting in the next life is actually the opposite of what I deserve, you know what that does? It actually frees you to enjoy the moment. To actually see your life as a gift. It's a gift of the God who loves you and has been merciful to you, has actually given to you. It doesn't always feel good. It's not perfect. But it is a gift, and it actually frees you to do that. And only the meek can enjoy the earth because everyone else is trying too hard to manipulate the earth and to manipulate God and to manipulate the people around them to do what they want it to do so that they might feel like their life is going the way they want. Meekness is freedom. But secondly, they inherit the earth in this sense is that and we've talked about this a lot, is that you who are united with Jesus are a co-inheritor with Jesus. You are a co-heir with Christ. What does that mean? It means that all that is now, all that is coming to Jesus is coming to those who are united with Jesus. And Jesus reigns over the earth. All dominion and authority and power has been placed under his feet at this very moment. He is your elder brother, It may look like those who are united with Jesus have nothing, but they possess everything because they're united with Jesus. The meek have no need, as we read in the psalm earlier, they don't have any need to fret over evildoers because evil will not have the last word, and they know it, no matter how desperate it might often look. And our king and our elder brother in his own timing, is going to descend out of heaven and is going to set up his throne on earth and the new Jerusalem is going to come down and he is going to make all things new. 
and those who are united with Christ reign with him. They inherit the earth. Listen to how Spurgeon describes it. He says, angels shall descend with new songs to sing, and the new Jerusalem shall come down out of heaven from God and all of her glory. Then upon this earth, where once was war, the clarion shall ring no more. There shall neither be swords nor spears, and men shall learn the arts of war no more. The meek shall then possess the land, and every hill and every valley shall be glad, and every fruitful plain shall ring with shoutings of joy and peace and gladness throughout the long millennial day, which is a way of saying forever. The Beatitudes are not how-tos. They are stunning pronouncements from the lips of the one who stood upon the earth himself and he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the meekness of Jesus. That meekness is the restrained, directed strength of our Savior towards sinners like us. Father, we thank you for the meekness of Jesus that we see even as we come to this meal. And Father, we pray that you would continue to create this in us, that you would create a submissiveness to you to your will and to your word, that you would create in us a meekness and a gentleness toward our neighbor, that we would be ones, as even as the city looks at us, that they would say, man, it seems like um, some really bad, messed up people are very drawn to them. Father, we pray that that would be true because some very bad, messed up people are already here right now. And so, Father, would you do that so that we might continue to proclaim the grace and the good news of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.